you just sang the, the wondrous cross. Is, is the cross wondrous to you? What difference does it make in your life day to day? We return to our series, Cries from the Cross, which is focusing on the seven statements that Jesus made while suspended there in the air as he was dying. Today's message will focus on the anguish of Christ that he experienced as he was crucified. We know that Jesus wasn't punished for breaking the Jewish religious law, the law of Moses. He wasn't punished for committing crimes against the Roman civil government. It wasn't even for any sins or wrongs that he personally had committed. Rather, he suffered and he died for the wrongs we've committed, for our sins. Take out your outline. There on top of the outline is a verse. Just to get us started, 1 Peter 2.24. He personally carried our sins in his body. Now, I want you to understand that. It's, it's, it's a little difficult to grasp, isn't it? But this is literal truth. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Jesus' crucifixion was predicted centuries before his life. Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years before Jesus' birth, Isaiah spoke of the crucifixion. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah. You can go to the middle of it, that's Psalms, and go to the right. Isaiah 53. See, after you use these books, you sort of get a feeling for everything, where everything is. So let me see those electric Bibles y'all have. I like that some of y'all, some of them in the early service have iPads and all kinds of stuff. There you go. I see one over there. But you've got to put it on church mode, which means you don't get any emails, no text while you're sitting in here. Isaiah 53 on 593. This is a passage you need to spend some time reading. This afternoon, read Isaiah 53, also Psalm 22. I'll mention that in a little bit. But Isaiah 53 clearly talks about the death of Christ. At verse 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten So we could be whole. He was whipped. So we could be healed. Notice it's written in past tense. As though it's already occurred. One of our members mentioned that to me. Between services. All of us like sheep. Have strayed away. We have left God's path. To follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him. The sins of us all. It would be hard to even imagine that, wouldn't it? Especially 700 years 
before Jesus' birth. When you think of the cross, what, what image comes to mind? Do you think of an angry God who is punishing a submissive Jesus? If so, it's, that's, not, that's not accurate. It's not correct. Because the saving work of Jesus originated in the heart of the Father. It was motivated by love. You know John 3.16, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's kind of the semi-King James that I memorized as a child. Words a little different. But those of us that grew up going to church, even like me, unwillingly, we learned that verse. I hope everyone, all of us know that today. You see, Jesus did not die to make the Father loving toward us. God loved us from the foundation of the world. And in love, by love, because of love, he formulated a solution for our sin. Jesus in no way suffered and died because of circumstances beyond his control. His death was planned by God. Because the Father chose to redeem humanity through the suffering of God the Son. You can see that in Acts. Peter's message that he preached after Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 about verse 23. But this morning I want us to look at the anguish of Jesus on the cross. What happened on that cross? And how is it expressed in this text? I think it's evident A couple of different ways. First, the anguish of Jesus is is expressed or is evident through the darkness on the land. Again, back to Matthew 27. Keep your ribbon there. We'll keep going back and forth. Verse 45. At noon, darkness, which some of your translations say the sixth hour... Because in Jewish timekeeping, noon was the sixth hour. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock, which is the ninth hour. Now, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m., the third hour. And his first three cries from the cross were spoken in the daylight. Three weeks ago, I dealt with the first one from Luke 23. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. David spoke from Luke 23, about verse 43, when Jesus told one of the thieves, today you will be with me in paradise. And then last week, we looked at from John 19, where Jesus looked at his mother and said, dear woman, here is your son. And he was speaking of the disciple John. Now at noon, after those Three things had been spoken. Suddenly darkness enveloped the land. And it remained until Jesus' death. It isn't possible from the text to determine how widespread the darkness was. Even in the original, in the Greek, it's not evident. But we do know that God could have made the darkness 
local. It could have been specific to the top of Calvary, just on that hill. Or it could have been over the city of Jerusalem. Or it could have been over the country or the whole world. He covered the nation of Egypt in one of the plagues from Exodus 10, verses 14 and 15. But what does this darkness symbolize? Why is it there? Well, rabbis associated darkness with the judgment of God for great sin. So the people would understand that. When, it, when it, the darkness fell, they would immediately think it was about sin. And there was never a greater sin than the collective sins of the world. The combined sins of all who would ever believe. Which Jesus absorbed. I think the darkness also displayed God's judgment against the evil men who treated Christ with such cruel contempt. And as I said a week or so ago, I'm glad I wasn't there because I fear I would have helped to drive the nails in. The scripture also refers to hell, I mean to, to darkness as a characteristic of hell. And hell is a place of utter despair, of complete, final hopelessness. Turn to the left to Matthew chapter 8. In verse 12. But many Israelites, those for whom the kingdom of God was prepared... Since the Messiah came to Israel. But they didn't believe. And those for whom the kingdom was prepared. Will be thrown into outer darkness. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And this reference to hell as a place of outer darkness. Is also mentioned in Matthew 22 and Matthew 25 and Jude verse 13. It's a place where there's weeping, so there's sorrow, there's remorse. It's a place where there's the gnashing of teeth, which which I think reveals regret, frustration. The Son of God endured the darkness of hell intended for any of us who don't exercise faith in His sacrifice. Does God's Spirit convict you of sin? Are you aware of God's displeasure over attitudes or actions? Now, not not often. It may be to you that God does envelop you in darkness when He's trying to speak to you. But perhaps not. So, in what way does God restrain you? How does He express displeasure? For attitudes and actions that that displease him. And when you experience that, how do you respond? The anguish of Jesus is also expressed by his use of a different name for his father. At about 3 o'clock, verse 46... Jesus called out with a loud voice, which would have required great exertion. 
Remember, it was difficult to breathe. A, a crucified person died of asphyxiation, so he would have had to push up to be able to breathe and to speak loudly. Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God. And I'll come back to the rest in a second. Now, Mark 15.34 doesn't use Eli. It uses the Aramaic form that is more likely what Jesus said. That was a spoken version in a language similar to Hebrew. But he would have said, according to Mark, Eloi, Eloi. That's why you'll see two different ways. It represented two different ways. Now, the Jews who were present would have recognized this phrase, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? It's a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. And I urge you to read that chapter today or this week along with Isaiah 53. Because it's interesting that Psalm 22 describes crucifixion with pretty great detail. Again, offering further proof of the trustworthiness of Scripture because that particular psalm was written by David who lived 1,000 years before Jesus' birth. In fact, it was written 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. And it wasn't an invention of the Romans. It was actually first utilized by the Medes and Persians. Persians being modern day Iranians. And it was more than 900 years before the Romans invaded Israel and conquered in 63 BC. So it makes no sense that David would have spoken of crucifixion. Jews did have a method of capital punishment. But do you know what it was? Stoning. Not crucifixion. So it's evidence of inspiration that David would have spoke very distinctly about crucifixion when it didn't even exist in the world at the time. Now my real point here though is that this is the only place in the Gospels where Jesus addressed his father as God. Not his father. And using a different name signified a break, a separation in the fellowship between father and son. He wasn't dealing with the loving father. Because the father at this point wasn't acting like the father. He was acting like a judge. And so Jesus cried out to God who refused deliverance. And rather was judging him, which intensified his suffering. I don't think this cry is without hope or without trust. Because notice, he says, my God, my God. So even though the father was relating as a judge, he still belonged to the son. The close communion was gone. The intimacy shattered. 
But the son knew that the father had not stopped loving or ceasing to or ceased to care for him. This was a cry of distress. It was not a cry of distrust. Have you ever called out to God when you were suffering? And he seemed nowhere to be found. Who's had the experience of a distant God, a silent God? Raise your hand if you've experienced a distant, silent God. Jesus, that's the God Jesus experienced. When you call out to God in your suffering, can you cling to him even though you don't experience his presence? Can you? I think God sometimes deliberately stays distant from us. Well, why would he do that? So that we learn to rely on the relationship we've already come to know, already experienced. And so we walk with him even when he seems distant, indifferent, silent. Well, what does that mean? Well, I know even when my wife has gone away from me and we're out of touch with each other, I know she still loves me because she's loved me in the past. She's loved me through many experiences. You see what I'm saying? Are we building experience with God so then when in those moments, even in our moments of suffering, and we cry out and he doesn't respond, we still cling by faith knowing he hasn't abandoned us. That's how we build endurance in our faith. Do you know God loves you even when you don't feel it? The anguish of Jesus is also expressed through a divine separation. Again, 46. At about 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice. Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me in some of your translations? Again, quoting Psalm 22.1. This is the core issue of the gospel. This is the most fundamental, most essential element of the good news that we believe. Some of you say, I like deep preaching. This is the deepest point there is. It's the depth of the gospel. That Jesus became sin and was forsaken by the Father for our sakes. See, here's the thing. It's it's literally true that Jesus became sin. Not that he just sympathized with our sin. He took on our particular 
personal, individual, specific sins. You know those sins you regret so much? You know the ones I'm talking about? He took all of them. And the other ones that you didn't even recognize as sin. He gathered all of them. Every harsh word, every sin of commission, every sin of omission, every evil thought, every sin, every personal, individual, specific, particular sin, and took it into himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Look at that one. The new living is not best here. But we'll read it from this translation anyway. Nine thirty-two. For God made Christ, who never sinned. The Philip said, "Who knew nothing of sin," to be the offering for sin. And see, that's not a good translation. And you even have an asterisk if you have the new living. Because a better, a more literal sin, a more literal translation is that he became sin. And you can see that. Or to become sin itself. It's hard for us to understand how that can happen. But that's the core of the gospel. That Jesus became sin. The sin of all who would ever believe. He took our sins from us. So we could take on his righteousness. See you couldn't take on the righteousness of Christ. If any sin remained. Jesus regarded by God the Father, the judge, as the one who was actually guilty of the evil that he accepted from us. The theological word is imputed sin. Vicarious atonement. But what it means is he became a sinner for you. Don't soften this. Don't minimize this. Don't make it symbolic. It isn't symbolic at all. It's actual. You say, I I can't imagine that Christ knows the things I did. He didn't only know them. He absorbed them. He became them. That feels different, doesn't it? The father abandoned the son because his holy justice required it. Habakkuk 1.13, don't turn there, it's on the screen. But says, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. See, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament just allowed God to stay in connection as he looked to the future of when ultimately the sacrifices, the, the sacrifice of Christ would remove the sin. No, no cow, no, no shedding of blood from a bull or a cow 
ever removed sin. Look it up. Anyone that's ever been forgiven, Old Testament or New Testament, was forgiven by the blood of Christ at Calvary. Some lived before him. We lived after him. The sin gathered at the cross. Jesus became a sinner. God separated himself from him. Some writers say God turned his back on the son as he hung on the cross because he would not, he could not look on sin, even and perhaps especially the the sin of his son. Not only did Jesus experience sin, he endured the father's holy punishment for it. Only Jesus could withstand the anger of the Father against sin. Only He could endure the wrath we deserve. The suffering of the Son was intolerable enough, but to endure it without His Father's presence magnified Jesus' anguish. Jesus clearly discerned God's presence and God's absence. Now, the withdrawal of the Father's presence didn't mean the withdrawal of His love or, the indif- or His indifference for His pain. Our Heavenly Father felt the pain of His beloved Son. Did you know God the Father feels pain? What do you think? You believe that? Well, of course he does. We're made in the image of God. We feel pain, don't we? Emotional pain. Jesus is the perfect image of God. He felt emotional pain. He felt the pain of betrayal. So does the Father. And I know Christians like to say, well, you can't trust emotions. You can't trust emotions that are led by the world. You can trust emotions that are led by the Spirit. Emotions that follow after our flesh and our desires and our lust can't be followed. But emotions that have been attached to Christ and led by the Spirit are reliable. It's part of who you are. Jesus had emotions. He didn't, they didn't lead him into sin. The father felt the son's pain because... As parents, if you had a child that died, didn't you feel that pain? Again, everything we are is from the image of God. Becoming sin, being abandoned by the Father, was, in my opinion, the bitter cup of suffering that Jesus did not want to drink from. Remember where he said that? Take from me this bitter cup. In the garden. Because you see, it wasn't mere crucifixion. Unfortunately, we, we think of the crucifixion as the pain. The, the spikes through the wrist or perhaps through the palms. But more likely through the wrist, through the feet, through the Achilles tendons. 
And we think of that and it would be terrible. But understand this. The Romans killed at least 10,000 people that way. Why was Jesus' death different? No other person's death removed sin. Because he was a perfect, infinite life. And his death gave us perfect, infinite holiness. When Jesus was forsaken by the Father, he didn't cease to exist as God. He, didn't, he wasn't severed off as a part of the Trinity. You see, if only the humanity of Christ suffered, there wasn't a real incarnation. Jesus couldn't suffer as a man without the divine nature suffering as well. And he didn't cease to be the Son any more than a child who sins severely against his father ceases to be the child. But Jesus did stop experiencing the intimacy of fellowship with his heavenly father because of our sin. Essentially, he suffered hell. Hell is fundamentally complete, absolute separation from God. It's permanent abandonment by him, which is eternal destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 through 9 says it that way. It's experiencing the darkness, the hopelessness, the regret that results from banishment to hell. See, understand, in our lives, there's always a second chance, right? You have a fight with your wife. You, you know, you're grieved over it, but you believe you can reconcile it later that day. That's right, isn't it, Stuart? You believe there's another chance, Right? See, we've never experienced anything where there's no chance to fix it. Nothing. No opportunity for reconciliation. No opportunity to come back together. You know what regret feels like? Don't raise your hands. But anybody done anything that, boy, you wish you could have back? That word, that hour, that, that day, that action. I wish I could have that day back. Don't raise your hands, but you feel like that? Imagine separated from God, no sense of his presence. No way to change anything. I thought hell was flames. Perhaps. But how do how can spirit beings be burned by flame as we know it anyway? I don't know about you, but where I have remorse or regret, it sort of burns. 
And again, don't raise your hands at this, but anybody ever suffered depression? Make the depression 1,000-fold worse and no hope of ever lifting out of it. See, even people that are depressed, I mean, some, some endure it for a long time, but, but most people experience it sporadically, periodically. They're helped with medication, with counseling. There's some hope of improvement, not in hell. Because utter despair is the right attitude. Are y'all feeling this? I think, we, I think it's healthy for us to feel this. On the cross, separated from the Father, Jesus suffered hell. The Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell. And there's some debate about whether this passage in 1 Peter means... He talks about leading captivity captive and all that. I really believe, I really believe that the hell reference is the hell on Calvary. The separation from God. Jesus suffered hell for all who would ever believe, for all who would trust in his sacrifice. See, that, that's what faith is. Unfortunately, we've gotten this idea that, that faith means, well, I just believe in some of these facts of Jesus. Born of a virgin, died on a cross, raised from the dead. No, no, that's too shallow. Faith means you are living in complete, utter dependence that Jesus really did take on all of your sins and that his death really was sufficient to cleanse you. That's all there is to faith. When we face God one day and he says, why should I let you into heaven? We only have one answer. It's not, oh, well, I preached for you. Well, I went on mission trips. Well, I drilled water wells. Well, I did some good stuff. I gave away some money. I helped the poor. No. You don't have any reason to admit me unless Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for me. Do you know it? That's all you have. That's faith. That's faith. Have you trusted in his sacrifice for your sins? See, I'm afraid many of us as children were very sincere. We said, oh, I believe that. But we, we didn't understand what it means to be utterly dependent on this this action of Jesus where he accepted our sins into himself, was beaten and separated from the Father so we could be forgiven. Have you trusted in that? That saving faith. The anguish of Jesus is also expressed through this derisive crowd. At verse 47. Some of the bystanders misunderstood 
and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so that he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. So it appears that some people mistakenly thought he was calling Elijah's name instead of God's name, instead of Eli, he, that he was saying Elijah, perhaps. I mean, the, script, the text says that. Some writers believe they were just mocking him even there. But it appears that one man who was likely a Roman guard and perhaps in an act of mercy got a sponge, soaked it in a jar of, of wine mixed with vinegar, you know, put it on a reed and lifted it up to Jesus' mouth. It's probably a Roman soldier because who else would have dared do that? Now remember, it is pitch black dark when all this is happening as well. But some of the others, even if the first that said maybe he's calling for Elijah, some of the others saw this Roman guard and they used his gesture of kindness as an opportunity to continue their ridicule. And they sarcastically said, let's let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. Now, you remember Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. Perhaps the greatest prophet. 2 Kings 2 tells how Elijah went into heaven. There was only one other person that went in the way he did. How How was it different? He didn't die. Because you remember why? Because he was in this movie. Dun, 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 dun. The chariots of fire is mentioned, but it actually says he was lifted up in a whirlwind. The only other person that never died was, you know who? Enoch. Only two mentioned. So there was a Jewish tradition that believed Elijah would rescue the righteous in their distress. Not a biblical um, passage that says that. But it's interesting that we know that Jesus, by remaining on the cross, suffering and dying, is the way he rescued us from our distress. But, but imagine yourself, you're standing there, perhaps there is a little fire some Roman soldiers have, but it's pitch black dark other than that. And here's this man on the cross, suffering, he was too weak to even carry his own cross beam. He's bleeding, he's been beaten 39, with 39 lashes, bleeding from his head. And yet, some of this crowd gathered at his feet, continued to scorn, mock, ridicule him derisively, cruelly, sarcastically, extending his anguish. Hard to imagine, isn't it? Some of you may have been thinking, how could you be that evil? I think we see it a lot of times. 
And these people would have been aware of the understanding that darkness, unnatural darkness, was from God for judgment. So it would seem that they would have considered the possibility that divine judgment was occurring at that very moment. And at least been silent, doesn't it? Instead of continuing to humiliate. But you should be able to see in our culture... The intensifying anger and aggressiveness against God. Who cares where there's a dead gum stone with the Ten Commandments on it? Just say, I don't believe that. Why such fierce anger? The anger and fear are always related. Realize that. So anybody that's angry, the other side of it is it's fear of something. They're afraid the judgment of God really might fall on them. And the way they deal with it is by trying to attack God and attack anyone that believes in God. You wonder why why are they so worked up? That's why. Because they wonder if what you're saying and believing really is true. So they got to crush you because they can't crush him. So these people stood at the foot of the cross and they continued to ridicule this dying man. That doesn't even make reasonable sense. I mean, wouldn't you think, even if you didn't believe, I think hopefully I would have enough sense to just, like my mother used to say, sometimes just keep your mouth shut. Just be quiet in your fear. Immersed in darkness at midday. Wondering whether daylight will ever return. It would seem that somebody in the crowd would be serious and thoughtful. It seems like someone would be questioning. You know what? Maybe this man really is someone from God. And. Maybe he's the Messiah. Now, they thought the Messiah would take over an earthly throne. So he's thinking, have we killed the Messiah God has sent? Jesus accepted our sin by actually becoming our sin. Being punished fully for it. Enduring abandonment from his father. So that... Those of us who believe that receive the righteousness of Jesus and are saved from the penalty of sin. That's what salvation means. What about you? Are you secure where you stand? There'll be counselors at the front you can speak to today. There are always uh, counselors in the care connection room across the concourse. There's a mile one class at five o'clock today to help you study about the, the scripture and the gospel and all that. Let me remind you soul training today and this week. Reflect on Jesus' sacrifice for your personal sins. Thank him 
for his willing death for you specifically, individually, personally, particularly. Father, we thank you. You didn't shy away from our sin. You accepted it into yourself. You allowed it to be infused into your being. And then you, you paid the price of death for what you didn't deserve and we did. God, show us this truth that it might transform our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming.